Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire to see your glory in how you're going to work. And uh, We have our desires as to how we would hope for certain things to turn out, but we know that you've got a bigger plan than what we can envision and, and even imagine, and we want to submit to whatever you may have in all these circumstances. And that your name be glorified, and we desire that you be glorified in our study, in our time together, our fellowship, our sharing, and, uh, the rest of the day, rest of the week. So we commit it to you, asking that your spirit would empower us to see things in your word that we might otherwise miss or otherwise not uh, know the impact of what you desire for us today. So we commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to take a look at a new division in the book of Romans. I gave you an introduction last time, and I focused a little bit on current attitudes, I guess you'd say, to the Jewish people that is growing, negative attitudes, anti-Semitism is growing, and I think you need to not only be aware of it, but also be sensitive to them and One of the main obstacles in reaching Jewish people is the history of the church. I gave you a little bit of that. We talked about the roots of anti-Semitism, and I uh, talked about the church involvement. And one of the approaches that the church has taken is described theologically as replacement theology. So I kind of defined that and talked a little bit about it. And the reason for that is because this section in the book of Romans is probably the central passage that totally undermines that thinking and that idea. So Romans 9 through 11 are very important and obviously historically has been neglected by the body of Christ and the church because one of the main persecutors of Jewish people in the church age has been the church. It's only been recent that Islam has kind of intensified. But So, that was last last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, it's on the website, as Connie noted. And there were lots of Jews in the city of Rome. I like to flash these because some of you were there, and it brings good memories. But one thing that we were reminded when we were there is, obviously, there was a church or several churches in the city of Rome, And the church was composed of both Jew and Gentile. Some scholars think closely in numbers, at least. Not that there was equal numbers, but uh, there was a significant number of Jewish people that lived in the city of Rome, and Paul desired to visit. So what he says in chapters 9 through 11 would be addressed to that particular group. Mary Lee is just telling Connie some of the things that we saw when we were there. Actually, I was just saying that I get a, a feed from from uh, archaeological stuff, and scientists or archaeologists are all of Twitter thinking they found the grave of Romulus. Oh. In this area. In the, in the very of, area. The great one. The grave yeah. of the, one of the founders, Remus and Romulus, are oh, the historical... They were archaeological founders. The founders of yeah. the city of Rome. They were raised by all of Twitter because they think they have found a yeah. grave site of Romulus. And they're all literally a Twitter. They are all <laughs> a Twitter. <laughs> 
Now the place we visited, the place we landed, I'll use that as a background slide. Just a reminder, real quickly, I went into a little bit more detail. We have kind of a drastic change from chapters 9 through 11 from what we've been looking at in chapters 1 through 8. In fact, you might even, even though it's not exclusively devoted to Gentiles, it includes all of humanity. And there are passages, like verse 16 of chapter 1, where the gospel is to go to the Jew first, and then the Gentile, the power of the gospel. And even in the first century, obviously there was a large rejection of Christ, the Messiah. The nation rejected him, and crucified him essentially, or sent him to the Romans to be crucified. So the Jews of the first century would have asked the question, well, where's the power of the gospel? And what about the Jew first? It seems like... The Jew, in some ways, may even be neglected. So we talked about that. And uh, chapter 8 ends in a very, very high note in terms of eternal security. There's nothing, no created thing. Now we talked about that. Includes you and I. We can't do anything bad enough to lose salvation. And very positive note. Well, if you're a Jew, you'd say, well, doesn't it seem like the Jews have not only been persecuted, but in the first century. Remember, this is just before 70 A.D., and they were about to be expelled out of the city of Rome. Hmm? Yeah. So their thinking is, well, how can you talk about eternal security when Jewish people seem to be in a very insecure situation? Almost seems like God has abandoned them. So... Chapters 1 through 11 are going to deal with that. What about all the covenants that God has entered into that speak, some of them eternal covenants, including promises that are not only contained in the covenants, but separate promises? What about all these promises that uh, Israel is to be the prominent nation in the world? Israel is to be the apple of God's eye. That Israel is... God's chosen people. What about all those passages? Well, this passage is going to address that. In fact, Paul says in chapter 2 that not only are the Gentiles, but the Jews are under wrath, under the wrath of God. In fact, his discussion of the wrath of God is more intense when he talks about the Jewish people in chapter 2 than it was even when he discussed the Gentiles. And if Jews are under wrath... What does that mean, and how is that experienced? And chapters 9 through 11 answer that one. Paul talks a lot about the law, and how the law is ineffective in terms of justification. And this is the means by which the Jews attempted to receive a righteousness by performing. And in that, the, the question is, if the law is ineffective... This is the heart of Judaism. This is the heart of everything they believe. And he even talks about sanctification. You can't be sanctified through the law. This is the heart of Judaism, the law, the Old Testament Mosaic law. So is the law ineffective? And how does that impact Jewish people? One thing we're going to see in chapters 9 through 11 is an emphasis on the law. In fact, he's going to talk more about and quote from the law, more so in these chapters, than any other part of the book of Romans. Several quotations and allusions. So, is Paul's gospel in error? Doesn't seem to have the power. Doesn't seem to have the effect on Jewish people that was evident in the first century. 
So uh, is there a mistake here by Paul? And should we not only reject Messiah, but reject Paul as well and his gospel? And in fact, he was rejected by Jewish people. What about the promise of the kingdom? If Jesus is the Messiah, isn't the kingdom supposed to come and arrive with the Messiah? Can't have a kingdom without the Messiah. Your Messiah was crucified. Your Messiah died on a cross, a humiliating, painful, dreadful death. So what about the kingdom? And what about Messiah? He dies. You Christians worship a dead Messiah. And we know that there's a resurrection, but Paul will deal with all of these issues. So, this is the importance of chapters 9 through 11 in the first century, and it answers a lot of questions that we would have also, even in our culture. I like to put these on a little chart so that it's helpful for you to kind of put together the parts. So here are the major parts of what we will be looking at. We looked at the first eight chapters where the... Part of it, God has provided his very own righteousness. Remember, we are declared righteous. Justification means we are declared, not made. We're not made righteous. We're declared it. In other words, that's our status, our standing before him. And in that, we have forgiveness of sin. We have eternal life. And that life is secure. We grow, chapter 6 through 8, we grow in righteousness as we look into his word, study his word, apply his word, try to walk faithfully and obediently, we can grow in righteousness. We grow more and more like him. But justification, so that's the provision. If justification is the provision, God grants us, declares us righteous, and then it begins a process of growing to be more like him. And it's not completed. The end of chapter 8 talks about a future When we go to be with him, that whole process is completed, and we are as righteous as Jesus Christ, because the sin nature is removed. So that's chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 9 through 11 focuses more on God. And what Paul, uh, 1 through 8, focuses on us and our need for righteousness, provision of righteousness, growing in righteousness. Chapters 9 through 11 speaks of God and his righteousness, and Paul vindicates it. And what I mean by that, I explained last time, is God's righteousness is vindicated in that he is sovereign to do with Israel whatever he so desires. He is sovereign over all things. He works invisibly. In fact, the unbeliever doesn't even have a clue and doesn't detect anything about the workings of God. But the believer can see it as we not only look at world history, but the insight that scripture gives us. God is absolutely sovereign in choosing Israel. And if he's chosen Israel sovereignly, he can do with them as he sees fit. And Israel, we'll see, is actually under rejection and under discipline right now. And it's gone for 2,000 years. And... Like I said, the church sometimes assumes that it's done and over and completed, but it's not. So chapters, chapter 9, first 29 verses, going to focus on a little bit of the history, the background of God's choosing Israel. And if he chooses Israel, he can work in them however he wants. Yes, they are his choice. Yes, they are the 
the prominent nation, but because they had rejected the Messiah and rejected basically what God has taught and the promises, they're under discipline. And it's going to take place until God completes another plan. He's also going to explain his plan with the Gentiles as well. Of Gentiles, in chapter 11, he talks about Gentiles being grafted into the root. The root is Israel, or the root basically relates to the, the nation of Israel. And Israel's been cut off from that root. But it's not permanent. There's going to be a restoration. And that's where the idea of replacement theology fails and is unbiblical because it doesn't take into account that there's a future for the nation of Israel. And it's not coincidental, I don't think, that in 1948, in May, God brought them back to the land of Israel before that, but on in May they declared their independence, a result of a lot of legal things that were resolved and immigration, and they've been immigrating ever since. And today they are a great nation once again. They're there in unbelief. Ezekiel gives two phases to the restoration of Israel. They are experiencing a physical, social, political restoration. Second phase, they will be converted spiritually. They will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That's yet future. And if you put all Bible prophecy together, the church age comes to an end, and then God is going to begin spiritually regathering his people. It seems that he's regathering them now politically, materially, socially, economically, in the land, and they're prospering. In fact, they are blessing the nations. Lots of research there. You may not remember, but when we were there, we drove by Intel and a whole complex of very high-tech, a whole complex of high-tech activity where they're on the cutting edge of most medical research, technological research, all kinds of research. Number one, the number one exporter of irrigation systems to the world. That's just one example. One example. Lots of inventions, exactly. So there's going to be a restoration. So this is... Basically, chapters 1 through 11 on one slide. So don't say I didn't teach the whole book. (laughs) Chapters 12 through the end, 16, apply all of these principles in practical areas. So it's the application portion. Remember, I've been stressing there are very few commands. Remember when we were talking about sanctification? There's not a lot of do's and don'ts. There's only, I think, four Four exhortations, but uh, imperatives. Is that what you said? Yeah, imperatives in the Greek structure of the language. That's a command. There's only four of them, and they're all in chapter 6. So he's not telling us, you know, do this, do that, do this, do this, you know, this and this and this. He's given us the principles that we apply, and then from then in our situation, now we know how to apply these dealing with circumstances. So he's going to give examples of those in the application portion. That's chapters 12 through 16. So we're done with the book of Romans. Let's go home. <laughs> Karen. Isn't it in uh, chapter 11, when the restoration, isn't there that verse that says that the, the very last Gentile will come to the Lord and change the passion? So there's actually an, act, an actual number of the Gentiles 
Now, it's not that specific, but that's that's an implication that you can draw, that uh, there's going to be a, an end. Here's my point. I'm waiting daily for the um, for the rapture to happen. So I'm asking the Lord, how close are we to that last year? <laughs> Could it be soon, Lord? Yeah. But it does tell us that there's going to come a day when, now it's not so clear in the book of Romans, but... If you put all of the passages together, there will be a day where the last Gentile is saved and God and the church is taken out, First Thessalonians chapter 4. And then God is going to again deal with the nation of Israel. And they will be prominent. And remember in chapter 11, it says all of Israel shall be saved. That's the spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel. So that's what these chapters deal with. Got it? So we've looked... At the provision of God's righteousness, here's kind of the same thing in outline form. 11, 9 through 11, vindication of God's righteousness. I have to abbreviate it or it doesn't fit on the slide. God is absolutely righteous. In other words, everything he does is right. There's no sin. There's no deviation from even less than perfection. God is absolutely righteous in his dealing with mankind. And Paul's going to vindicate that. He's going to do it in several ways. He's going to talk about the past sovereign election or choice of Israel, kind of expanded our little chart there. That's 9, 1 through 29. We break this down. He's going to start with the first five verses. We won't complete them today. Where Paul, the sorrow of Paul is vindicated. In other words, why is Paul sorrowful? I stress that chapter 8 ends on a very high note. Glorious note. And then now we have deep sorrow. In fact, I call it extreme sorrow on your outline sheet. So that sorrow is indicated. He describes it in the first three verses, and that's about as far as we'll get today. And we can break that down into three parts. The sincerity of it. I'm using S as my alliterative tool here. It's a sincere evaluation of sorrow, verse 1. So, verse 1, I'm telling the truth. That's the sincerity aspect. And by the way, if you read the Greek text, the first word there to emphasize it is truth. And then you have the verb. Remember, in Greek, you can have the words rearranged. It doesn't fit kind of the English pattern where you usually have the subject and then the verb. In Greek, you could have the predicate as the first word. And the order gives you what is most important or what's emphasized. So the idea of Paul truth, the idea of truth and Paul telling it is the most important part of this whole sentence that runs all the way through verse 3. So he's going to tell the truth and what's the content of that truth. First of all, before we look at that, we have a totally new sentence. It's kind of abrupt. And I've stressed that already. Verse 1 abruptly changes from chapter 8. What we've talked about in chapter 8, very abrupt. And grammatically, all of a sudden, you know, he's laying out all of these issues of sanctification. And then all of a sudden he starts up, truth, I tell you. Almost like, I've got to kind of depart from what we've talked about and emphasize the content, and what he's going to emphasize is his concern for his fellow Jewish people. And it's a deep, I call it extreme concern. And I mentioned the emphasis now is on God himself. 
because God is the one that's going to be vindicated. So he's going to talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. He's going to talk about the choosing of God. He's going to talk about the righteousness of God, the mercy of God, all of these aspects of God. And you can count 26 times. He talks about God as creator, as sovereign, as righteous, all of these aspects of who God is. So there's a, a total change here from the emphasis of the first eight chapters. More Old Testament quotes, so that's another kind of abrupt change. He's going to refer Isaac, Jacob, quoting passages out of the Old Testament, Moses, lots of Old Testament in chapters 9 through 11. And he's actually going to give us God's philosophy of history. So we'll talk a little bit about a biblical perspective and a biblical view of history. And one of the biblical views of history, the theologians don't bring it out, but one thing I've observed is history includes the future. In your world history text, does it say anything about the future? No. All it talks about is events that have taken place in the past. Biblical history looks at the most significant events of the past, but it also tells you what God is going to do. And what he's going to do is just as certain as what God has already done. So that's kind of an insight into a philosophy of history that is a little bit different from secular history. There's other things that we'll discuss as we move through. Okay? And the focus is on Israel, Israel's election. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of election in more detail. We touched on it in chapter 8. And Israel's relation to God's plan. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And after 2,000 years, this generation, Israel has been around for 70 years now. This generation has been privileged to see a miraculous gathering together of the nation of Israel. There has never been a group of people, a nation, an ethnic group in history, after they've been displaced from the land, after they've been somewhat destroyed and defeated by an enemy power, they usually don't last for more than maybe 100 years or so, and then they assimilate into wherever they were scattered or with the people they were conquered by, and they lose their identity. Can anyone identify a Babylonian today? What about an Egyptian? Now, I'm not talking about the people that live in Egypt and they call themselves Egyptians. I'm talking about people that are descendants of ancient Egypt. The answer is no. Assyrian? No. Even Roman? No. A few Greeks. <laughs> but they have remained in the land and kept their identity. But there's not been a nation that after 2,000 years of scattering all over the world have maintained their identity and returned back into the land. That in itself is a miraculous event. And they've maintained their language, almost lost it, maintained their culture, maintained their ethnic identity. Most people will assimilate, intermarry, lose that Bloodline. Jewish people have maintained their bloodline. Now, there's been some mixing, but in general, they've maintained that and maintained even their religion, even though it's a corrupted religion in terms of scriptures. No people have done that except the nation of Israel because God predicted that it would happen. And he predicted that it happened 
hundreds of years before Messiah came. In fact, Israel's history has been predicted before they even became a nation. You have a summary of Israel's history in Leviticus 26. Moses received the revelation of the law and Leviticus at Mount Sinai before they were a nation. The whole chapter gives you a summary of the history of Israel. It's repeated to the next generation in Deuteronomy 28. We have an outline of all of Israel's history, and it speaks of the restoration that Paul talks about in the first century. This is in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, Deuteronomy is written to the second generation that left Egypt as slaves. All they were were an accumulation of 12 tribes. They were not a nation yet. Until the book of Joshua, that's when they become a nation. When they have their own land, they have a common people. At Sinai, God gives them a common constitution. That's to regulate them as a nation. And then under Joshua, they become a nation where they have their own land with boundaries. And before they're a nation, God outlines their history. Paul gives another outline here, at least the later stages. Make sense? So they have a direct relationship to God. So Paul, I'm telling you, I'm telling the truth in Christ. And to emphasize it, I'm not lying, gives the kind of the alternative. He's just trying to emphasize his concern. He's saying this because of what he's going to say in verse 2 concerning that great sorrow. And if that's not enough, he says, well, he's got three witnesses. And what do you need? Two. In a, in a court of law in Israel, two or more witnesses. And Paul has given us three witnesses here. The truth in Christ, he's telling the truth in Christ, so he's testifying, he's testifying as a witness himself. And my conscience testifies. And he uses a word, a very common courtroom word. Remember we said in the book of Romans, there's lots of legal courtroom terms. Here's one of them. We've seen it already. The idea of to give testimony in a court. That's why I used the uh, background slide there. So now his conscience is also giving testimony. And conscience is a guide. God has given us a conscience. Now you can sear that conscience such that it distorts everything and you don't have a perspective on what's right and wrong. And lots of unbelievers have a seared and distorted conscience. But when it's functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the believer, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, it can sort out a lot of those distortions. And only then can it do that. So we have a witness of conscience. In other words, the conscience validates or supports Paul is telling the truth, and he's not lying, his conscience is clear, and that gives testimony, and if that's not enough, the conscience testifying with me in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what the Holy Spirit is directing inwardly also is part of the testimony and witness here, so we can include speaking truth in Christ... So he's in fellowship with Christ. We've seen that little phrase, in Christ, over and over again. His conscience validating 
that he's telling the truth, and now it testifies together. In fact, the word to testify has that prefix. Remember the prefix that gives you the idea of something together? Soon, yeah, S-U-N, sigma, upsilon, noon, for a Greek speaker here. Together, with, the testimony is together with something and together with the Holy Spirit that's inside of Paul. So that's his sincere evaluation or explanation that's going to take us next to verse 2 where he's going to describe this sorrow. So he's not exaggerating. He's not making it up. He's not faking it, but he has, in verse 2, that I have great sorrow. And this sorrow is such that he emphasizes it by calling it an unceasing grief. And it's deep internally in his heart. That's why I call it extreme sorrow, because of the emphasis that Paul gives to it in this passage. And from that, uh, we can draw an application, and you can draw lots of applications from lots of things, but I thought it might be useful to talk a little bit about emotions just by way of application. We've said over and over in other passages and in other places that emotions in and of themselves, God has built people with emotions. Part of who we are In fact, it appears that it's part of the image of God, in that God has given us emotions. Now, he's given an extra dose to half of us. (laughs) All right? God has built in the women an extra dose, and I was left out. I was not in the line when they were passing out emotions, so I'm a little bit more (laughs) machine-like. Right? Some of you have testified to that. But emotions are from God. This is the way he has built us. But because we are sinners, and that sin nature, that sin nature takes those emotions and twists them, distorts them, uses them for sinful aspects, but in and of themselves they are not sin. So it is not sinful to be sorrowful. In fact, there are sometimes very good reasons to be sorrowful. Grief is a natural emotion that God has given. When you lose a loved one, it is okay to grieve. Make sense? Emotions in and of themselves are not sinful. They're God-given and part of how God has built us. And sometimes men need to understand this because we tend to not understand the emotions that God has given women. Even anger. Who can quote for me the passage that actually exhorts us, commands us to be angry? That's right. Ephesians, Ephesians 4, right. It says, be angry. There are occasions when it is, um, what's the word, uh, necessary and appropriate as well to be angry. And how do we know that anger is not a sin? Jesus got angry. Jesus got very angry. Really angry. Okay. And the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, where anger will come from God himself. And some of that in present time. And there's no sin in God, and Jesus is sinless. The Bible is clear on that. Jesus expressed anger. Jesus expressed grief. Remember when Lazarus died? 
text tells us, great grief. He cried. Someday I'll learn how to do that. Sorrow. He had sorrow as well. There's other occasions where he expressed sorrow over the hardness of people's heart. Sorrow. And even hate. Hate is not a sin. We're going to see in chapter 9, God expresses hate. And there's appropriate situations where we can express hate as well. And what is that main area that we should hate? Sin. Sin. Bible makes that clear. The sin in ourselves. And starting with ourselves. Very good. Okay. And we could make a longer list and add more negative ones, but I thought these, we have these two in the text, sorrow and grief. I added anger and even hate. But any negative, what we call negative emotions, them in and of themselves are not sin. What makes them sin is how we express them. Okay, there's right ways and wrong ways to express all of the emotions. Sorrow, if it leads to self-pity, that's sin. It was, oh, poor me, I'm sorrowful, you know, that's not, it's not sinful, so it's okay. But if you take the next step and it leads to self-pity or other things that are in fact sinful, I'm just giving an example here, then it becomes sin. If it continues and you continually dwell on it and try to use it to manipulate others, that's sin. Okay? The emotion is not, it's how you express it that can be. Similarly, grief, if you're neglecting your responsibilities, you know, the grief just goes on and on and on. Oh, I can't do that. You know, I'm grieving. You know, and you use it as an excuse. You know, God just built me this way. It can lead to neglecting responsibilities. Now, you do have, God gives everyone a period of time where in some cases, you, you can set things aside, but if it goes on and on, and you're actually neglecting responsibilities, that's sin. Or if it turns into blame. Or blame. Yeah, there's different ways, exactly. In fact, yeah. sorrow, you can turn that into blame. Anger, that same passage that we quoted, what does it say? Be angry, but what? Do not sin. But do not sin, because that, in fact, these negative, if you want to call them negative emotions have the tendency very easily for us to fall into the sin aspect. So in the same verse where he says, be angry but do not sin, that is one of the emotions that easily. And what what that that meant is sinful expression of anger, striking out, verbally abuse, verbally berating someone, treating someone badly, all of the ways that you can express anger. In fact, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? What does Jesus equate anger with? Murder. murder. And he condemns anger that results in murder and equates the two. Because that's the root of murder, is taking out whatever on somebody to the extreme. Jeremy. So, I mean, you got we're clear, right? It's not... Obviously, it's, there are ways to have anger with yes. sin. Yes. But there are certainly many ways to have sin with anger. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of what that object is, what you're angry against when you hate. Well, not even the object. No. So. Not even the object. So, it's so, how you express that. Well, well, well no, even, not, even if you don't express it, you can have it in your heart. So, yeah. it doesn't have to have a physical expression. So, I just want to make sure. I mean, we can have. Yes. Like, so, so anyway, it's just, it's not that anger is not sin, but there can be a sin that is, there can be an anger that's not sin, and there can be a hate that's not sin. And it, yes. But, but there are many that are. Yes. So that's okay. Yeah. Just, 
Yeah, good point. Just when you see not sin, anger, hate, it's just like, okay, wait, obviously. And that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. In fact, a parent that does not discipline a child appropriately and express proper anger at certain bad behavior is a bad parent. So that's an appropriate place to even express anger. It shouldn't be excessive, it should be proportional, and it should teach a lesson, it should be training, that sort of thing. Parents need to learn that. And with that, go ahead. I was going to say that our anger, especially our anger and our hate, are areas where the spirit just gets in. I mean, where the spirit of the enemy gets into our lives, and those are most often the areas where we have absolutely inappropriate responses, because even as Jesus hated the sin in the Pharisees, he never expressed it inappropriately, even as he was calling them rude vipers. Mm -hmm. That was appropriate. That was appropriate, but he wasn't, I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is that the inappropriate expression denigrates. Yes. Um, rather than trains. Rather than and there's a, there's a difference. There's a difference in children where you're you're teaching and you're training and you're correcting, and berating would be simple. Well, Jane, the, the, the words that pop into my head when I see it are rage. Yep. Loses it. Right. And bitterness. Yep. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And do not associate with an angry man. That is around. Yeah. There's lots of verses on these. Well, I, anger usually is because somebody's interfering uh, with what I want. or So it's a good way to see how selfish you are. Selfishness, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you've got to protect your money or your status or your... Yep. And you express that in a sinful way. And a good guideline is avoiding hating people rather than the sin of the people. You can hate the sin... And still love the person. In fact, we're commanded. Hmm? Through the Holy Spirit. Only through the power. Only in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know this. Yeah. I didn't say that these things are easy. I didn't say these things are easy, right? Yeah. One of the reasons we do need that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Lord and time in the Word to keep our minds with the right perspective, because when we are in the middle of the emotion, it's hard to sort all that out. David? It's easy to see Jesus as angry in the temple. It's hard to see sometimes that that was a righteous anger. Yes, a righteous anger. And there's such a thing in the Bible. And to not express righteous anger in the right circumstance is sin. So there are some situations, and probably the clearest, is a parent dealing with a child that is into bad things. To not discipline, that, that's a form of righteous anger. To not discipline, uh, the Bible says is not good. Okay, that's your little exposition on emotions from somebody that has none. <laughs> Makes me an expert, because I can look at them objectively. I can talk about child rearing, too. <laughs> Okay, now we have the extent of Paul's sorrow to the point that he makes a very, very interesting passage. Let's take a look at it, and that's a good place to to stop. For he has even a desire to substitute his own, maybe even destiny, or his own relationship with God, 
if it would be possible that some of his fellow Jewish people would come to Christ. Okay? So verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Wow, pretty strong language here. And if that's not clear, separated from Christ. If it be possible for me to be separated from Christ and the Jewish people would turn to God, Paul says I'm willing to do that. Willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, my brothers in terms of ethnicity, my fellow Jews. Remember, Paul was a Jew. That's an extreme. Just pretty extreme. It's an amazing statement. Yes. That is really, really wonderful. That's sacrificial love. That is sacrificial Okay. All right. So let's let's break it down and take a look at some of the parts. For I could wish, and notice it's kind of I could. The translators are trying to give the sense here. It's actually the, the verb there is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense leaves some ambiguity. In other words, it's a past tense, but in terms... In some cases, uh, the time, the timing of whatever's being described is indefinite. And in this case, the whole situation is indefinite. So if the imperfect tense is used here rather than, let's say, the aorist tense. Remember, we talked about the aorist tense. But wishing is usually conditional tense. Yeah, and there's, there's a few little, there's a little extra wording here from what we have in the Greek text to kind of make it a little bit clearer to the English reader. So, that's one thing to note there. And some theolo- the theologians debate, you know, this is, this is really strong. So it's hard to kind of put it all together. Is Paul actually praying this? And more than likely, it, it's kind of, it's, it's more of an idiomatic idea. In fact, I've got that next here. But it's not an actual prayer. It's something like what it says in Acts 25-22. Does somebody want to, we have time to look that one up? Well, you're looking that one up. Uh, it's kind of idiomatic, uh, an impossible wish, but you make the wish uh, because it expresses your your deep and strong desire. And it's not that Paul is wishing and hoping and praying that he be accursed, but he is expressing here, you know, I feel so deeply, I am so sorrowful, so in grief, that if it were possible, I would lay down my life for my fellow Jewish people. That's the idea. Somewhat idiomatic, so it's not a real, actual prayer. Who's got 25? You got it, Connie? You had it? Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to know myself tomorrow. Okay, that's an example. It's not in the context of deep sorrow, but it's a, kind of an indefinite wish. Indefinite. I'd like to, I'm not going to go out of my way to, Meet with him, but if you know if circumstances worked out, I'd like that idea. So the, tr- the construction in the verse, because I was looking at this thinking I didn't see. Didn't quite get it. But is that the, kind of the verb construction? I guess. Yeah, similar to? similar verb idea of that indefiniteness. That's what I'm trying to illustrate by that passage. I would wish myself a curse. Yeah, that's where you're talking. Yeah, yeah, idiomatic, an impossible wish. Paul just talked about the security in Christ. Nothing can separate us. So he's not saying, God, go ahead and take my salvation away and give it to the Jewish people. 
It's kind of an idiomatic, impossible wish to emphasize the deep sorrow. That's right. Emphasizing. Yeah. And the word that it uses here, uh, we even use this in English, anathema. I guess we get it from some of the translations. Uh, if it be possible to condemn myself, or for you, God, to condemn me, and if this would work, this is a little bit like what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any possible way of bringing salvation apart from his death, remember Jesus prayed that. And then when it's all said and done, thy will, Father, rather than my will. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Would you? Anyone here look forward to No. So the, the word anathema, and it's only used a few times, but it has the idea of it could be possible to be condemned. He's not talking about losing salvation, but experiencing wrath or judgment or condemnation. Separated from apo, the Greek text there, that's the word separated from. There's only one word, it's just apo, the Greek word here. But the translators put two words there to give you the idea, the separation. And then he uses another interesting preposition, for, the word for, huper. You familiar with that word? Remember we talked about that? Hmm? We studied that in the context of Christ dying in the place of us. We deserve to die. Christ died in our place. He's our substitute. So it has an idea of substitution here. If Paul, if it were in any way conceivable or possible that I could stand in the place, almost like Christ stood in our place, Paul couldn't. Paul knew that because he's a sinner as well. He could not die in their place. Only Christ could do that. But he uses interesting wording here. So the idea of separating from Christ, separation from Christ, maybe as mild as even fellowship, but I think it's stronger in this context. And substitution, but it's an impossible wish. Because only the sinless one could be the true substitute for sinners dying on the cross. Okay? And it's for the sake of my brethren. Now, most of the time when Paul refers to Delphoi, Delphos, brothers, He's usually speaking spiritually. In other words, spiritual brothers, but here's an exception, and he makes it clear so we don't misunderstand. He's talking about his Jewish brothers, brothers by ethnicity. Then he adds kinsmen, in other words, by relationship, by ethnicity. And if that's not clear, according to the flesh, in other words, in, in our physical, material genealogy and genetics, He's a fellow Jew, and if he could substitute himself, if it'd be possible, then that's his desire to express how deeply he is concerned. Now, the next verse is going to explain why he has this deep sorrow. He's going to explain how Israel, in their great relationship in the past to God and all that God has granted them, they're losing it. They're outside of God's plan at the time, and they're losing out on all of the privileges that God has given them. We'll have to remain, leave these for next time. But we see some similar expressions. In fact, the one I'd like to look at, uh, particularly, you might study Exodus 32, where Moses does something similar for the nation of Israel. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. She agrees to give up. He says, I'll give up. 
what I have on this Yes, if they would turn, if they would return. Remember, chapter 32 is when Moses comes down from Sinai with the tablets of, of the law, and Israel's down there dancing and carrying on, and you know, all they're doing with the false idol. The one that jumped out of the fire just Yeah, just popped out. <laughs> yeah. And and notice what God does. God says some strong things there. He's gonna destroy them all and make make Moses the, the new exactly. the new people, yeah. yeah. It's gonna start over. Yep. And I mean, and then Moses saying, Don't no. No, 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 I mean, no, no. But for the right reasons. I mean, Take me instead. That's essentially we'll look at that. Similarly, Jeremiah more in sorrow over, remember Jeremiah writes when the nation is on the verge of being destroyed by the Babylonians. Okay? We'll take a look at that next time. Closing thought here. Emotions are God-given, not sinful. How we express them is what we need to be concerned about, not the emotions in themselves. Who wants to close for us? You guys are stunned. Karen, do it. Amen. Have a good week.